guests, people online. Uh, really glad, I'm really glad that you're here and that we get to, to fellowship over God's Word today and over just what Judah was uh, kind of giving us an appetite for God's holiness. And everything we know is just a poor picture in, compar- in comparison to what he's like, who he is. Uh, and so I love the line from that one song that I might catch a glimpse of his glory. And so that's what we want this morning. That's my prayer this morning is that we would catch a glimpse today. And in many cases, that's all I can handle. I can only handle a glimpse of what he's like, but otherwise it's overload. Our theme this year here at our fellowship is divine pursuit. And divine pursuit has, has two sides to that coin. And we started this year with the side, and a very necessary side of teaching is our, our pursuit of God. And so Judah talked to us about uh, our hidden ambitions, the things that we're after that you can't see because everything we do is out of our heart, and that's what God looks at. God looks at our heart. Um, and what we'll find, I think if you look nationwide, worldwide, from a, a Christian teaching standpoint, there's a very lopsided um, approach to teaching, and that it's always it seems to be lopsided in view of our pursuit of God. And in many cases, our pursuit of God is necessary to be taught on. But I've taken uh, last week and this week, we're going to talk about divine pursuit from God's vantage point, from God's standpoint, from His perspective. There's two sides of the coin. We are in pursuit of God. But more significant is he is in pursuit of us. And not just pursuit. He's in active, passionate pursuit of us. Your pursuit of God does not outweigh his pursuit of you. I'm letting it sink in a little bit. Our pursuit of God is in response to his pursuit of us. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. One John teaches us in chapter 5, we love because he first loved us. Everything we're doing is in a response. I'm in pursuit of him because he's in pursuit of me and we're in agreement That's what marriage is. Marriage is two people in pursuit of each other. It's a covenant. We're in covenant to pursue each other. It doesn't mean we got each other, now I can lay back. No. Marriage is an active pursuit. I'm in pursuit of you. And so, uh, our relationship with God must be this, there must be more of a balance in our daily view you must add to your daily view, God is in active pursuit of me. And just like in the beginning, remember before you knew the Lord? How the Lord would use people, things, songs on the radio, shows on the TV, lines from movies that would just bug you because everything was saying, I want you. Everything 
in your surrounding became a Jesus call, I'm after you, I want you, I died on the cross for you. And we became so convinced as unsaved, as unsaved people, we became so convinced at one point that this thing about Jesus was real. And it brought us to an internal decision point, didn't it? It brought you to an undeniable, God was able to communicate with you in such a way that in an undeniable way, you came to one point in your life where you said, I have got to bow my knee to this. I have got to accept Jesus as my Savior, no matter what your words are that you used. No matter what prayer you prayed, it became a turning point in your life because you recognized that God was alive and that he had brought you to a decision point. And he was able to communicate with you in a way that you could understand it. That hasn't stopped. It just may be that we aren't in tune with it anymore or we think our pursuit of God is we're trying harder than he is. God has the same passionate pursuit, active passionate pursuit of you today that he did when you were unsaved. And he still will use people, teachings, songs, events, bosses, co-workers, crazy things that happen. I mentioned last week songs on the radio. A friend of mine got delivered. She was seeking the Lord for something and there was a country music song playing on the radio, and she got delivered. Not because country music delivers us, but God is free to use anything if we're listening, if we're tuned. So, uh, one of the scriptures we considered last week was, if while we were enemies, God came for us, God delivered us, how much more now that we're children? It's not a less active or less passionate pursuit. So today, I, I have a lot on the plate. I've, uh, I want to talk this morning. If we could have the, the Hebrews uh, chapter 10 verse up. I'm going to talk about a what this morning, a who this morning, and a why. What are we talking about? Who does it? And why do we not sometimes seem to be enjoying it? So, um, I'm going to be talking. Our theme, or our, our theme is Divine Pursuit. The series title is Divine Pursuit because I'm very original. And um, the this message title today is Kinsman Redeemer. And we are going to talk this morning we are going to start talking about forgiveness. You know, that thing that everybody knows all about. We know forgiveness. It's the first thing we met with. It's why Jesus went to the cross to secure, to carry our sins and our sin. Not just the deeds, sins, but the root why we did the deeds, the sin that ruled us. He carried it all to the cross, and he secured and purchased for us 
forgiveness of sins and freedom from the power of sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says this, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time. For by one offering. He has perfected for all time. All time. All time. What, you're, what, what happens to you tomorrow? What happens to you next week? You know, where you blow it next year. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The issue is whose are you? Who do you belong to? Okay. The what we're talking about this morning is forgiveness. Forgiveness from God's perspective is quite different from forgiveness from our human perspective. If I wrong you, you can say, and legitimately so, you can say, I forgive you. I release you from that. But there's not much more you can do. You can't heal my body. You can't fix my situations. You can't turn around my economy. You can't reach out with your hand and save my loved ones. Can you? What I can do is I can say, I release you. I forgive you. I am not holding you in debt. I am not holding anything against you. In regards to me and this situation we had, completely dealt with. I forgive you. That is not the way God forgives. Can we have the Daniel uh, chapter 9 verse up, please? I'm going to zoom a little bit this morning. So... My kids got a cat, and they say when the cat just tears all over the house, it has the zoomies. And so a little bit this morning, I've got a little bit of the zoomies because this is too good. This is just too good, and it's got to be complete. This is Daniel praying for himself and the nation of Israel. They're in captivity. They've been taken hostage. They are carried away, and he's in Babylon, a prisoner. And listen to how Daniel prays. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Okay, God's forgiveness is nev never passive. It's always active. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. Action. If God has forgiven you, there's no reason for him to not take action. Is not, there's no reason for him now not to do for you what you need. The issue's out of the way. It's forgiven. God is not one to say, oh, okay, it's, it's all right. I forgive you. Just get out of here. That is not God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is active. Can we have the next verse? Uh, Second Chronicles, please. <clears throat> Very famous passage. We often pray it for America. It's not intended for America. It's intended for God's 
people. There's an application of it now that pertains to God's people. But the, the context for this is, if I've shut up the heaven, or if locusts are consuming your crop, or if I'm withholding rain from your land because of your sin, and this is God saying, speaking, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. God's forgiveness is always accompanied by action. The healing of the land is the proof and the fruit of, I've forgiven you. There's no reason for me not to heal your land. There's no reason for me not to do for you what the sin was preventing. Forgiveness is always active. Okay. Sorry about the America comment. Psalm 103. And, and remember, this is Old Testament. This is an Old Testament view of forgiveness. And it's rich. David prays, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth, even your youth, is renewed like the eagle. That's forgiveness. Can we go back and go through it again? Because your... Next verse. Next, next verse. Because he pardons all my iniquities, there's no reason the obstacle to your healing has been removed. There's a progression here. It starts with forgiving your iniquities. So then the result is who, if you're forgiven, there's no reason for me not to heal you of your diseases. There's no reason for me not to redeem your life from the pit. If you're forgiven one, I'm not going to sit and watch you, says the Lord. I'm not going to sit and watch you in your pit when you're a forgiven one. I'll redeem your life from the pit. I'll crown you with loving kindness and compassion. I'll satisfy your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Forgiveness that we have from God is active. It's not just simply a legal pardon. Okay, go. No, that the forgiveness of God is an active thing. Let's go New Testament. Luke chapter 15. For time's sake, because there's a lot on our plate today. I want to remind you that Jesus gave an account of a son, a man, a wealthy man who had two sons, and his one son said, Dad, I want my inheritance now, which is dishonoring to the parent. Basically saying, I can't wait till you die, so just give me your money now. It was a dishonorable thing this young man did. Then he took, according to this account, he took his inheritance and spent it on loose living until he had exhausted all of his inheritance, a famine hit, and the only place he could get a job was caring for pigs. And he, the, the scripture in this account, if you go back to um, Luke chapter 15, you can read for yourself how he said, 
he wanted to even eat the pig's food. He was so hungry. And then he began to think, my father's servants eat better than me. They're treated better than this. I know what I'll do. I'll go home to my father and I'll humble myself and I'll just become a, a field worker. I'll just become a slave. So he journeyed. He set out to return home. And you can almost tell in this passage that he had practiced. He had rehearsed the spiel. But the scripture says, and in Jesus telling it, he said, but the father saw him coming afar, a long way off, meaning the father was looking for him. And when they got together, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't even let him finish. He interrupted him. But the father said to his slaves and really, really, really seize upon this word quickly. There is no delay I will brook no delay in this. Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Give him back everything. Restore to him his position and his place in this home and grant him honor worthy of a son who has done no wrong. This is an active forgiveness all, God's forgiveness is always restorative and redemptive. His forgiveness is never just, oh, all right. It's not begrudging. It's not inactive. It's not passive. If God's forgiven you, he's now going to go about setting things right. If you remember last week, we talked about some of the, the terms God identifies with and that he tells us terms like father and shepherd Father and shepherd are both terms that announce it is incumbent upon me to take care of you. The infants in our midst cannot take care of themselves and the parents understand. It is incumbent upon me to care for you. That's God's view of you. He's in pursuit of you. He's more watchful for us. Shepherd. My sheep cannot lead themselves. A shepherd understands it is his job. If the sheep are poorly fed, it's the shepherd's fault. And our God is incomparable. We can't even compare him to a human shepherd or a human father. His forgiveness doesn't compare to uh, earthly forgiveness. If he's forgiven you, he is going to do everything in his power to restore you, and to restore what's yours back to you. To redeem you from anything that is trying to hold you prisoner. That's holy. It's not like what we know. It's bigger. His thought on his responsibility when he forgave you and me is greater than we thought. Because we only know what it's like when we forgive each other. Uh, the next verse, Luke chapter 5. Now this, this passage used to really throw me because I didn't get it. So hopefully, maybe it can answer some questions for you. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus. Do you guys remember this? 
Anybody remember this passage? But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, Jesus is inside somebody's house. And it's so packed that they can't bring their friend in. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now, they just destroyed a man's house. So there's a lot of things to, <coughs> there's a lot of things to unpack here. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, and here's what threw me. Jesus, you're supposed to say, be healed. Why, why, what are they doing? They're bringing a paralyzed man, lowering a paralyzed man down. So you're supposed to say, Jesus, I said in my reading of the Bible, correcting Luke, correcting Jesus. No, Jesus, you aren't supposed to say this. You're supposed to say, be healed. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. This threw me. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. Maybe I was there. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Wait, what? Wait, 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 what? It's as if Jesus saw no difference. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Well, neither is easier to say. They're both easy to say, right? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you may know, I'm trying to help you through what I stumbled over, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he's supposed to say now, be forgiven, right? Because he's showing us that he has authority to forgive sins. So what should he say next? Be forgiven. He doesn't do that. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. No, no, you're getting it all mixed up, Jesus. When you're healing people, you're supposed to say you're healed. When you're forgiving sins, you're supposed to say you're forgiven. But Jesus uses them interchangeably because his forgiveness is not passive. It is active and restorative and redemptive. It always accomplishes something for the forgiven one. Because God doesn't just look at you and say, you're forgiven. God says, you're forgiven, so now let me do this. I know the Bible's a difficult book, and it messes with our head, because God does not think like we do. Can I read this verse from the beginning one more time, and then we'll leave it, because it's just marvelous. And some men who were carrying on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus. Why? They wanted him healed, correct? Okay. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who alone can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. 
It's marvelous. It really is. It gives us insight into how God thinks. A forgiveness that heals. A forgiveness that restores. A forgiveness that is active and in pursuit of us. Uh, our last verse in this little section of the what. What are we dealing with? We're dealing with forgiveness. Um, is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, but the same exact verse can be found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If I read it backwards, it says this. Through the riches of, our, of his grace, we have forgiveness of our trespasses the redemption by his blood. All forgiveness is redemptive. Okay, well, here's a word that I can say, I can use it in a sentence, but it is not in my culture. Redemption is the word to purchase, to buy, to pay the ransom, to pay the required price. Redemption was done in the case of somebody who was imprisoned or taken or kidnapped or taken hostage or a slave or a debtor who because of their debts were then sold and they had to work off their debt. But redemption was, what do they owe you? I will pay it. Let me read you this passage. I was reading this scholar who was writing about um, can you throw me my glasses? I can't read my own. All you had to do was throw it. I guarantee, I guarantee I would have caught it. We'll never know. I can see big stuff. So redemption is buying back something that has been lost. But now we're getting to not what. We've dealt with the what. We're dealing with forgiveness. And we understand from God's perspective, forgiveness is active. There's follow-up action because the person has been forgiven. It's redemptive. It's restorative. But who does the redeeming? Well, there's something in the Hebrew culture that there's a place for a person called a kinsman redeemer. And that's the person that's closest, the relative that's closest to you is responsible, not if he wants to. He is responsible for redeeming you, for doing what's necessary. But doing what's necessary what? Let me read this because this was uh, helpful for me. The kinsman redeemer in Hebrew culture was expected to act in such a way as to preserve the property, life, integrity, and family name of the relative, bringing them to rest. This notion of kinsman redeemer that I'm not done till you're at rest. Um, there's ideas of, we're familiar with some of these 
uh, roles and responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, in the Old Testament, if a, man, if a man died and had left his wife childless, then his brother, his kinsman redeemer, was responsible for raising up children so that that man's life, so that the wife would always be cared for because that's what children did. A woman who has no child has no future. She has nobody caring for her in her old age. She has no one defending her. She has no one working. There's no legacy. There's no inheritance. It's a big thing. So the kinsman redeemer was responsible for raising up children to his, for his brother in honor of his brother. You ever heard the verse uh, and the saying, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? That's the kinsman redeemer's responsibility. If somebody offends you and they beat you up and take your eye, you better know who his kinsman redeemer is because you may not want to mess with him. You may want to forego that fight. Because you may not want his kinsman redeemer after you. Kinsman redeemer was responsible for, he'd show up at your door and say, you knocked out the tooth of my nephew. Come on out or let me drag you out. You owe me a tooth. For the honor of my nephew, for the honor of our name, of our family. And imagine a kinsman redeemer who would not assume his responsibility. We have a very famous uh, account of, uh, in the Bible, in the book of Ruth, of Ruth needing, redeemed. Her father, or her husband died. There was no man to raise up anybody in her family. She was left alone with her mother-in-law. And Boaz became her kinsman redeemer. There's a longer story that I'm not going to get into now. But this notion of kinsman redeemer is very important because redemption requires a redeemer. So if forgiveness, you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, that means you have a redeemer. Let me read you a verse. Uh, I didn't give this to the team, but I'll tell them where it is. It's in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 33 to 35, and it says this. This is where be careful who their kinsman redeemer is. This is what the Lord of Armies says. Who? <laughs> Lord of Armies. This is what the Lord of Armies says. The sons of Israel are oppressed, and the sons of Judah as well. And all who took them captive have held them firmly. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of Armies is his name. He will vigorously plead their case so that he may bring rest. What? Bring rest to their land but turmoil to the inhabitants of Babylon. Babylon had taken Israel captive. And there came a point where God said, time's up. You've had your chance. Now, this kinsman redeemer, in his securing, in his paying of the price, can we have the Romans chapter 8 verse up, please? Romans 8 says this, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, this part, 
We know our kinsman redeemer is Jesus. We know that he came to pay the price for our freedom, our liberty. And this passage says, the requirements of the law might be fulfilled. And this word fulfilled means filled full, funny enough. The word is cram the net full. Like put every last fish in the net. Completely, overabundantly supply and bring to an end. Our kinsman redeemer has paid more. He went above and beyond. He didn't just pay for our forgiveness. He over abundantly beyond. He crammed the net full of payment for our on our behalf. And he secured forgiveness. Now you, you want to be a person who's forgiven. Because now, in view of God's forgiveness, he wants to set your land right. He wants to restore anything that was lost. He wants to pull you out. Anybody still in some kind of captivity to anxiety, to fear? You know, there's... Mel Gibson did a movie some years ago called The Patriot. And in The Patriot, there's a line that Mel Gibson's character says on a number of occasions, I think at least two. And this is what he says, because Mel Gibson's character had been a violent man as a general and had done some kind of massacre in, during the course of the war. And his character says this, I have friends would return to visit me. I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. The problem with this quote is that Mel Gibson was portraying himself as a godly man, a praying man, a man who would, by all appearance, have had some kind of conversion. It never says it, but he's portrayed that way. That is not the forgiveness of God. There is nothing coming. The, the shoe is not going to drop. There is not a past sin that's coming for you. Yeah. Yeah. There is not a payment. It's been paid more. The net's been crammed full. Every bit of payment required to free you and then result in healing and blessing redeeming you from the pit, crowning you with loving kindness, satisfying your years with good things so that, the youth, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And that's the old covenant. The new covenant says it's been enacted on better promises. It's a better covenant because of better promises, because of a better sacrifice. Your Redeemer shed His blood. Your Redeemer went to the cross to secure for you an unbelievable forgiveness. It's not a minor thing. He is active. What are we talking about? We're talking about God's active forgiveness. It doesn't stop with, oh, your sins have been pardoned. It doesn't rest until you have been brought to rest. Yep. Who does this? Your kinsman redeemer, who we understand is Jesus Christ. 
He has accomplished something called redemption and it's holy. We only have glimpses of what it's like. Why do I sometimes feel like that's not my experience? Ah, that's important to get to, isn't it? Well, in some cases, sometimes people just don't know. They don't know that's what they're supposed to expect. You know, Jesus treated things that people, some of the children of Israel were suffering as illegal. Ought not this daughter of Abraham be released who has suffered these 18 years? He's saying, this isn't right. Jesus was saying, this covenant woman, this daughter of Abraham, this is not right. It is not legal. Shouldn't she be released from this? She suffered for 18 years. And there's people in this room who are suffering things illegally. And that's, isn't that, isn't forgiveness of sins the reason we pray? It forms the basis for our prayers. I'm appealing to God for what he's purchased, for places of illegal interference in my life, things that aren't right. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. We are in a warfare. There are things that are illegally trying to take blessing, take forgiveness. And so what they eat at, the, these adversaries and these enemies, they eat at this forgiveness. You have a weak forgiveness. Because when you have a strong forgiveness, you will not stand for it. So I want to get to one, but why might you not be experiencing and enjoying the forgiveness that's yours? First off, no, it's opposed. You're in a warfare. You're living in a land that's on fire, a world that's on fire. Maybe you just don't know yet. Maybe you haven't heard. Maybe uh, you weren't taught that about forgiveness yet, and this, maybe this is the first time you're hearing it. Uh, maybe you're under accusation. Maybe there's a spiritual accusation taking place in your life that says you only deserve trouble. You know, this whole Mel Gibson, your sin's coming to visit you. See, you're reaping what you sow. And you know what? If Jesus ended, ended the your past sins are going to come back and visit you. That's what forgiveness is. Have you forgiven yourself? That can be something. Are you still waiting? Waiting for the, the blow. What's it, what do we say? The, the other shoe to fall? No, it's not falling. It's been paid. The net's been crammed full. There's not a shoe waiting to fall in your life. But there is an accuser who wants to rob you. Maybe you haven't confessed. Confession is required. 1 John chapter 1. If you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and release you of any kind of effect. And that doesn't, mean, that doesn't just mean sorry about that. That means, Father, forgive me. I poked Donovan in the eye and I stepped on his foot and I gave him a noogie. <laughs> if you're in another country, a noogie is when you hold somebody in a headlock and you rub their head. It's not fun if you're the noogie E. <laughs> if you're the giver of noogie, they're quite satisfying. <laughs> Confession invo involves me coming to the Lord in a contriteness and saying, this is what I did. Please forgive me. But here's the one I want to get to. Uh. 
What's he doing? I'm looking for the pencil that's behind my ear. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15 says, But if you do not forgive, this is Jesus teaching, but if you do not forgive other people, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. This is in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Unforgiveness is one of the biggest reasons people don't enjoy the forgiveness of God. It is required. Your treatment of others is reflective of how you view your forgiveness. If you don't think you have much, much of a forgiveness, then you won't be much of a forgiver. There's a direct correlation. Jesus taught in one case about a, two men praying. One was a Pharisee and one was a sinner. And he said, the one who was forgiven much loves much. If you have a rich forgiveness, and beyond that, if you have an awesome redeemer, you understand that your petty offense against me doesn't hold a candle to what I have already been released of. Who am I to hold any kind of offense against you, even if it was an offense? I'm not denying that people can't hurt you and me. I'm just saying that given a godly perspective, I have been released of millions and millions and billions and trillions of dollars of debt. And if you owe me 15 bucks, God says, release them the 15 bucks. It is reflective. My treatment of others is reflective of what I'm doing with his forgiveness, whether I'm enjoying it, whether I live in the power of it. How do you forgive somebody? You come to God until he takes the sting away. You come and say, I forgive, I forgive him. I forgive him. Lord, I release him. What he's done does not compare to what you've released me from. Talk to the Lord about how much you're releasing him. And then what you can find along the way is somewhere along the way he took the sting out. And you walk in the power and the liberty of forgiven. They really don't owe you. You're not just saying it. But sometimes it takes a little work because we live in homes with other people. Forgiveness is best learned at home with the people you see every day. I went to my... <laughs> it's the headgear. The headgear makes me think I have my glasses on. <laughs> what we've been offered... What has been accomplished for us is what we could never have done. Our debt was beyond repayment. There was no way we could accomplish it. And our Redeemer came and said, I will pay the price in full. I'll cram the net. You owe nothing. You, nothing you offer will be accepted. You can't. It will not be accepted. Whatever you're trying to do to get God to like you, he will not accept it. Being good for a week is not going to change anything. He likes you now. There is no zero debt you owe. Nothing's coming back to revisit you. The shoe, other shoe is not going to drop. 
and this has been purchased for you. But then, not only that, but your Redeemer now has the responsibility of making sure that your land is returned to you. Your property is restored. Your children are brought back. Your body is made whole. He is now responsible to recover for you because that's what a Redeemer does. It's his responsibility. It's the responsibility of a kinsman Redeemer to ensure that your property is preserved, your life is preserved, your integrity, your family name, the things that pertain to your life are brought back to you and set in order so that you can rest. So that's what he's doing. He's reclaiming. And it's a marvelous thing. It really is. In the old charismatic movements, we would say, now, whoever wants to take their stand in this, please stand up. I'm not going to ask you. Because sometimes those things turn into show. Because you can take a stand in something right here. But it's going to require you to say, wow, I didn't know. Wow, I didn't realize. I didn't know your forgiveness was active and pursuant. That you are in pursuit as my Redeemer. You are in pursuit. You know the places where I'm still being held captive illegally by fear, by anxiety, by sicknesses, by all manner of things that are illegal. And so your Redeemer is saying, come on out. My salvation is something, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, or is it 2 Peter chapter 1, this salvation was so marvelous, the prophets who prophesied of it studied, and they wanted to find out, who is this salvation for? Things into which angels long to look. Who gets this? The prophets of old would say, who gets this that I'm prophesying about? We do. And we better take it. He is in pursuit. Now, we're going to back, through the course of this year, we're going to be talking about our pursuit of God because they have to co-work together. They have to be compatible. Our working together needs to be in view of His ways. But we have to place a huge emphasis on His pursuit of me as father, as shepherd, and now as kinsman redeemer, it is incumbent upon him to do for us what we cannot do. The kinsman redeemer understood, you can't do these things. You've just been in jail. And in many cases, sometimes we're still walking around like prisoners. And we'll be given help in that. We have an accuser to say, yeah, you've always been like that. Yeah, yeah, you're that way. Yeah, this is, you deserve this. Yeah, this is because of what you did before. But here's where we start taking our stand and saying, no more. I can't pay. He won't accept anything I try other than my kinsman redeemer has crammed the net full. I owe nothing. I pray that these things will follow you around, that this truth will pursue after you, and that you might have already been relieved of a burden 
while you sat here this morning. It is highly possible for people in this room to have suddenly realized, I've been waiting for the other shoe to fall. And it's not gonna. That is liberating. There might be people in this room that are still trying to pay through deeds and this and that, and I'm trying to show you how appreciative or how whatever it's already been paid. Your payment is rejected. You're supposed to come with one thing. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's been paid. The net has been crammed full. It is over. It is done. And you might have also been alerted this morning to the fact that, that's right, there is that person I don't like. Just let it go. Go to God, release them from their $15 so that you can walk in the enjoyment of your billion-dollar release. Quit dragging people around with you. Have a bigger view of your forgiveness and you'll enjoy forgiving others because you'll learn to walk in the taste of, the experiential taste of having the sting removed and finding out, ah, thank you, Lord. I forgave, but then you took the stinger out. That's the way it works with us. So if we could just pray. Father, right now all over this place, I just want to thank you for decisions, places of decision, places of people learning to take a stand in the marvel of what Jesus has accomplished. Father, impress upon us that every day we have our kinsman redeemer who hasn't just paid our price, though that in itself would be beyond imagination. But now our kinsman redeemer is working to ensure that that redemption invades every other area of our life unto bringing us to a place of rest. We thank you that you loved us so much that you have taken this responsibility on yourself. We couldn't have begged it. We couldn't have deserved it. We couldn't have earned it. We couldn't have paid for it. And once again, we're catching just a glimpse of your glory. And we want to say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.